Um, the Bible tells us that the best people to tell you about God's grace are people who are familiar with it. And the only way that you can be familiar with God's grace is to see that you really need it. To see that you're actually a sinner. And Jesus says so much. Um, all of these religious people are gathered around him and all of these like very publicly known sinners, prostitutes, town drunks are gathered around him and people are bothered by that. The religious people are bothered by it. And Jesus says, I didn't come. The physician doesn't come to save those who are well, but those who are sick. In other words, for you to even know the physician, you have to see the sickness inside of you. And so at RUF, because we talk so much about God's grace, that means that on the front end, we acknowledge that we're, we are sinners here. So if this is your first time here, if this is maybe even your first time at a, a religious thing, please don't sit here thinking that these people around me have it together. Actually, what we would acknowledge is the opposite. That we are people who really need God's grace. And this is who God's people are. We're going to see that in this kind of large passage that I'm about to read to you. That God's people, throughout the history of the Bible, are people who mess up. Are people who need grace. So let's read this together. Exodus 32. Um, Try to use your imagination about this because there's actually, the Bible is funny. I don't know if you knew this, but there's, there's like funny stuff in the Bible and there's, there's some zingers in here. So saddle up guys. All right, here we go. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, We do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And when and and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Yummy. As Moses said to Aaron, and Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do? 
to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him and he said to them, this is not the funny part, by the way, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. This is God's word to us. He's given it to us because he loves us and it's true. So let's pray and ask him to bless the reading and teaching of his word. Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth, that the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you and that you would be with us as we consider what this means. And we ask that you would do that by the power of your spirit. In Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so I have just two points. I know, shocker. I'm usually a three-point sermon guy. Here we go. I hope y'all are saddled up and ready. We're doing a two-point sermon tonight, okay? First, the problem with idolatry, and second, the solution for idolaters. Um, To set this up, I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine in high school. One of the fun things about being from a really small town in Alabama is your high school friends are hilarious, I have just some really, really funny high school friends. And one of them in particular is this guy named Mark. Um, He's just a character. Uh, Some of his jobs while we were in high school included uh, running his own private pea patch that he uh, grew for cash. He also worked at the local seed and feed. He also interned at the county morgue and went around and picked up dead bodies. This is Mark, okay? So he's kind of a character. So he's also happens to be super competitive. So one day, a bunch of, a group of friends of mine, um, we decided to drive to the big city, Huntsville, Alabama. Um, and they had a minor league baseball team there. So we were going to go watch a minor league baseball game. It's summer, there's not a lot to do. So we drive to Huntsville and we get there and there's like no one at this minor league baseball game. I don't know if you've ever been to a minor league baseball game. Um, it's kind of boring. Usually there's not a lot happening and not a lot of people there. And we got there really early. And so during batting practice, there's guys hitting foul balls, there's guys hitting home runs, and there's no one picking up the balls except us. And whatever ball you pick up, you can just keep. And so we kind of just started having a contest over who could collect the most foul balls and home run balls. 
and Mark is a psychopath competitive person and he's getting really into it. And as the game starts, more people kind of start filtering in. It's like the sixth, seventh inning. About by that time, there's probably about, I don't know, one or 2,000 people at this minor league baseball game. And we're all sitting down the third baseline. And this guy hits just kind of like hooking foul ball down the third baseline, but deep. We're like at third base. And he hits it deep, like over the left field, um, kind of foul line, but it's a foul. And Mark, who's sitting on the end of our row, just jumps up and takes off running to get that ball because he wants to win our contest. Well, we're watching Mark run, and everyone in the, I don't know if you've been to a baseball game, but you can't, when you see a foul ball, you want to see who ends up getting it. And so everyone in the stadium at this point is now watching Mark run after this ball, but they also are watching somebody else who's much closer to the ball where the ball has landed. Like, it's a five-year-old girl. And the five-year-old girl is kind of like tottering towards where this ball has disappeared behind the bleachers. And Mark is just jetting like a, you know, Usain Bolt down the sideline to go get this ball. And they both kind of disappear below the stands. You don't know who's going to come up. And all of a sudden, Mark just emerges with this foul ball. He's like, woo, yeah! Like, so happy that he got this ball. And... It was immediate. 2,000 people in that stadium just turned on him, just, boom, like, you're a jerk, give her the ball. And Mark, who is still just blinded by his competitiveness, gets defensive, and he's like, you, we can't hear him because he's too far away, but he's going like, what? Like, what? Oh, God. He kept like, he was like, like stomping back to his seat, he was, and he kept, people were like yelling at him, like, you're a jerk, give her the ball. And he kept going, fair and square, man, fair and square, I got it, fair and square. <laughs> just like, this is not like, do not sit by us. We do not want to associate with you right now. But event, you know, eventually he got like shamed into giving the ball back. People were booing him. Like the game like couldn't even start. And he finally like got up and gave the ball back. But here's what I, I want you to have that image of being so set on something that you want and then getting it and it actually being bad for you. Like not being at all what you thought it would be. And I think all of us have experienced that to some level or not in our lives. And that's what Israel experiences here. Because that experience of striving after something and thinking that it's going to give you what, it, what you want from it, that is idolatry. And this is a story that's all about idolatry. And to set it up, if you haven't been here, the context is this, is, this is in the book of Exodus, the great salvation story of God's people in the Old Testament. And it starts with Israel in bondage in Egypt. God hears them crying out for salvation. God does these amazing wonders to free them from Egypt. He destroys the Egyptian army. He frees his people. He feeds them in the wilderness every single day. We've been talking about that, how he's feeding them and giving them water and he's caring for their every single need and he's revealing himself to be a trustworthy God who loves them and is for them. And remember last time we met, we said, by the way, he does all of this before he ever even gives them the law. Before he ever asks them to do something, before he ever gives them the Ten Commandments, he saves them. And that's important. That's, that's kind of the paradigm for how God works in our salvation. First, 
he saves us, and then he calls us to obedience. It's, and if we get that backwards, we don't get Christianity. If we think that it's obeying first and then he'll save me, you're missing it. And so what we see is that God actually saves them, not because they've done anything good, not because they've earned it, but because he's gracious. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And then he reveals to them that he's going to come live among them. And this is going to be the climax. We're going to talk about this next week of the book of Exodus is that God is going to come and live among his people. And because of this, because this is about to happen, Moses is going to go and talk to God about like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to arrange this? Whenever a big event happens, we take time to plan it, right? I, mean, I, rem- I remember I, when Christy and I got married, I was shocked at how much time it took to figure out a wedding. And it was just like so clear to her that we needed months and months to prepare. And I, I just didn't get that. But when you have a significant event, you take time to plan. My, one of my buddies from seminary, his daughter is having her quinceanera in a year and a half. They're already like sending out invitations and planning for it. It's going to be awesome. I'm like, dang, a party that you planned a year and a half in advance. I want to go to that. That sounds amazing. And this big event is about to happen. God, the God, the creator of the universe is going to come and live among his people. So Moses is like, hey, y'all, we need to sort out how we're going to do this. I'll be back. And he leaves and he goes to the mountain and like 40 days go by and the people are like, where is he? What's going on? Where's Moses? And I want you to imagine what you would feel like in that. I mean, you're kind of they're just like camping out for 40 days, waiting to hear what's going to happen next in the wilderness. They're probably bored. They're probably restless. They're probably feeling a little insecure. Like there's we might get invaded. There might be there's like wild animals out here. We don't know what's going to happen. And all of this leads to them failing just like right off the bat. It's, it would almost like this story, the equivalent to this story would be like you guys going to syllabus day, your professor handing you your syllabus and being like, okay, you're going to have 10 questions on your midterm. These are the 10 questions. God's given them the 10 commandments, right? You're going to have, here's the 10 things that you need to do on this midterm to pass. And this story would be like showing up to your midterm and looking at question one and being like, I have no idea what to write. I don't know. And just get it wrong immediately. And you had the question in front of you the whole time. Because they break the the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. They break the second commandment. Don't make any graven image of me. They break commandment one and two within like the first couple weeks. They fail. And they fail, and, and here's what I want to ask you. Here's what I want you to think about. Where do you go to when you're bored or restless or insecure? Because this is, what, this is the problem with idolatry for us. The problem with idolatry, idolatry is that it comes so naturally. We see this in verse 1. Moses is gone for just a little bit of time. He delays on the mountain, and the people gather up together and they say up make us gods who shall go before us as for this moses we don't even know what's become of them they're so impatient and what comes out of that what flows out of that is idolatry and that's the problem with our idolatry is it's so natural a, a theologian in the 16th century said this he says our hearts are idol factories 
People have been saying this for hundreds of years. This is the, this is the state of the human condition. Our hearts are idol factories. Mary Emily, could you cut the air on back there? That would be magical. Um, so here's what I want you to, to ask yourself. What would you do? How do you fill in this blank? Because this is a good diagnostic for understanding where do I go to when I'm insecure, when I'm bored, where I'm restless. Where is, where is the place where I'm finding my hope? How, what fills in this blank? When you put your head down on your pillow at night, if blank went well, it was a good day. If blank went poorly, it was a bad day. That's, that's the thing, or one of the things, that you're looking to that defines you, that gives you hope, that gives you satisfaction. And there's all kinds of things that we can fill in the, the blank with that. Academics. It could be getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It could be being perceived as successful or being beautiful. And here's the, the bitter irony of this, is that we go to these idols because we think that they will serve our needs, that they will make things better for us. And what ends up happening is the opposite. The thing that we think is going to serve us and make things better for us, we end up enslaved to it. So what I mean by that, if your idol, if your idol is control, like if I was in control of things today, it was a good day. If I felt out of control today, it was a bad day. If your idol is control, then you will be controlled constantly by trying to make sure that everything is going okay. By trying to make sure that everything is being managed, that your life is planned out, that you're making sure that everything is lined up perfectly. What ends up happening is you, the thing that you thought was going to serve you, being in control, you end up getting controlled by it and enslaved to it. Or maybe if your idol is having a vibrant social life, then what ends up happening? This thing that you think is going to give you satisfaction and peace, this thing that's going to serve you and make you feel good, what happens is you go to a social setting and you're constantly measuring yourself. How am I doing? Was I funny enough? Was that interesting? Did I come across as a tryhard? Did those people like me? And the irony is, because you're constantly measuring yourself and analyzing yourself, the thing that you thought would serve you and make you feel good, your social life, you actually end up not even being able to enjoy it as much because it wears you out, because you're enslaved to it. And if there's anything besides God that's defining your life, that thing is too small. See, by the way, listen, the things that I just listed, success, beauty, having a little bit of control in your life, um, social status, social life, none of those things are bad. You realize none of, those things are, none of those things are inherently bad things. The problem is an idol is when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. And that's what, that's what we see in our hearts all the time. At the heart of our idolatry is an elevation of ourselves. 
that we think we know what we need more than God knows what we need. Sin, in other words, is man substituting himself for God. Putting himself in the seat of God and believing that we know what's best. And this is absurd. And it brings chaos into our life. Um, my, my son has a Super Nintendo. Thank you, Zach Snelling, for selling that to us. So great. Um, Super Nintendo. It's the first ever platform that had Mario Kart on it. And he gets uh, one hour of video game time a week because we're really mean parents. Um, but it, that's a big deal. Like, video game time is a huge event in our house. And our four-year-old, Georgia, has gotten very interested in video game time. And so now she wants to play. And there's only two controllers. And usually Owen and I race each other. And so Georgia wants to play. So what she'll do is she'll come and sit in my lap. And, I, and I'm like, Georgia, if you press this B button, we, you'll go and I'll steer. So you be the accelerator and I'll be the steerer. And she's like, great, okay, cool. And we're awesome when that happens. We, we win all the races. And it's because I'm way better than Mario Kart than Owen is. It's really, really fun. But anyway, um, she, she has a great time and he's kind of like getting annoyed because his little sister's smoking him in Mario Kart. And it's really good for him uh, to be humbled a little bit. And it's great. But then what always ends up happening is George is like, I'm awesome at Mario Kart. I got this. And so she, I'll feel her little left hand come up and start to just kind of like nudge my hand off of the steering. And I'll be like, no, 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 Georgia, I got this. Like, and she'll be like, no, daddy, I want to drive. You know, just start. And I'm like, okay, okay, you can drive. And then all Mario starts doing is this. Just like into the side of the wall the whole time, over and over and over again. And then like the panic level starts to rise and Georgia's just like, like Peach is passing us, Bowser is passing us, like everyone's passing us. She's just ramming into the wall over and over and over again. And like, think like for her to think that she can control this, it, it, it brings chaos. And I know that I'm like comparing myself to God in this metaphor when it comes to, to Super Mario. I'm sorry, but like I'm really good at Mario Kart, guys. But I. My point is this, the, diff, the biggest difference, this is a quote from Anne Lamott, she's a, just a fantastic um, writer um, and novelist, but she, she says, uh, she was converted later in life, she says, the, the biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. You see, the problem with our idolatry is we think that we know it's best for us. And what that ends up doing is is it brings chaos into our life. And the problem with our idols is that they can't save you. Like, not even your own personal version of God can't save you. Because what what Israel actually does here, it's very interesting. The the kind of theological term for this, it's called syncretism. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. Syncretism. And what syncretism is, is taking some Christianity and then like spicing it up with a little something else. So like what, what makes you righteous is like having God and some Christianity, but also, for example, being a really great patriot, God and country. A Christianity plus something else makes you right and good. Or Christianity plus really good moral living. That's syncretism. Or Christianity plus some like new agey kind of like self-help stuff. 
That's syncretism. And what syncretism is, is it's forming God into something that he is not. And look at verse 4. In verse 4, you see, the people, they say, these are your gods, O Israel, after they make the calf. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now look, they know, who brought, they know that it's the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt. But what they're doing now is they're making God into something that he's not. They're saying this golden calf is him. And he brought us out. And then Aaron says in the next verse, verse five, look at it. He says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. But here's the thing. They're not about to have a feast to the Lord. They're about to have a feast to a mute, dumb, golden calf that cannot save them. And we do the same thing. When we make God into our own personal version of him, that is idolatry. And here's how we do this. Is God reveals himself to us in his word, just like he did with them. He he tells them, this is who I am. First commandment, don't worship anything else besides me. Second commandment, don't make a graven image of me. What we do is we, God reveals himself to us in his word. We hear him and then we say, yeah, but you know what? It's not really that big a deal if I let my friend copy my homework. But what has God said? Do not lie. Do not cheat. But what we do is we, we kind of form this God who's okay with the things that we're doing. And we apply it to all kinds of things. Like, God doesn't, is it really that big of a deal that I gossip? Or God doesn't really, he doesn't care. It's not that big a deal of like what I do with my sex life. Or it's not that big of a deal that I, that I obey the law of the land, which God calls us to do in Romans 13. It's not that big a deal. God doesn't care. And it, here, here's a test for you. Does God ever make you uncomfortable? Does your God ever make you uncomfortable? Do you ever disagree with him? If not, you are probably fashioning your own God. You are not worshiping the true God. You're making him into a comfortable God in a box that fits for you. You aren't letting him, through his words, speak into your life. You are muting him. You're making the appearance, it's, it's literally the same thing that they're doing. They're making this appearance of worshiping God, but it's a God who can't speak to them. And that's not a relationship. Imagine, imagine if, this is a horrible illustration, it's ridiculous. You ready? This is great. Okay, so imagine that there was a button that I got my hands on that could mute my wife. And so whenever we're talking and she's like, John, could you, and I just went, beep. And just don't want, you know, I don't want to hear her tell me to take out the trash. I don't want to hear me to, to do the bath time right now. I'm watching the March Madness. I don't want to hear me to, if I, if I could just mute her, that wouldn't be a relationship. Because she wouldn't be speaking into my life. And do you see what Israel does? They exchange a God that they can't see who speaks to them. 
for a God that they can see who doesn't speak to them? And which God do you think is easier to control? Which one do you think is a little bit more comfortable? It's no surprise what they pick. But here's what God knows. If they go into the promised land, which is where they're heading, where there's all these other people living, if they go into the promised land and they've got a golden calf who is not real and has no power, if they go in there, they're going to be toast. They're done. They're destroyed. Because the problem with our idols is that they destroy us. So I had... um, when I was in fifth grade, we read Where the Red Fern Grows. Anybody read that? Whew. Made me want a hound dog real bad. So I asked for a hound dog uh, for my parents. Wanted to go coon hunting. And instead, they gave me a miniature dachshund for my birthday, uh, which is cool. Uh, so I named him Stretch. And Stretch was... Here's the thing with Stretch, okay? I'm going to be real with y'all. Stretch did not care about me at all. Like, he was not that great of a dog. Um, Stretch... I love Stretch. My mom's listening to this podcast right now. Mom, I love Stretch, but he wasn't a good dog. Okay, anyway. Um, Stretch only cared about one thing in his whole life. Eating. All the time. Stretch would eat anything. For example, um, we had a five-pound bass that my brother caught that was stuffed. And when we moved, the bass had been like put under his bed. We moved and pulled out the bass. Stretch had eaten the entire thing. Like A stuffed bass is like maybe 2% real. He just consumed all of it. That's Stretch. Stretch ate so much and became so fat that when a little lady in our church ran over him with her Lincoln Town Car, he survived because he was encased with fat. The doctor was like, we've never seen anything like this. A miniature dachshund get run over by a Lincoln Town Car and his vital organs were encased with fat. They could not sew him up because he was so fat. So they did liposuction on our miniature dachshund and then could stretch his skin back together and sew him up. And he walked like this, like the rest of the block. Like a, he was like a C. He was in the shape of a C. Okay, that's stretch. He only loves food. So I'm sitting watching TV in high school. Stretch is on the ottoman. No, he's not on the ottoman. He's on the ground. And he's old and kind of crippled. And he's shaped like a C. And we're, I'm watching SportsCenter. I'm eating a, like a box of Oreos. And I get up to go get some milk from the refrigerator. When I get back, this cripple C-shaped miniature dachshund has done some kind of like dachshund parkour. Like, and jumped on the ottoman and then across onto the chair and then up onto the table, the side table. And now he is wolfing down a sleeve of Oreos, which if you know anything about dogs, like that is, like he's eating poison. He's eating dog poison. His liver is going to fail at any moment. And so we take Stretch to the vet. By the way, the vet loves Stretch. The vet, the vet is like kept open by Stretch. Liposuction, not cheap. Anyway. We take Stretch to the vet, and he has to have his stomach pumped and because he's filled with dog poison. And here's the thing. I promise this has a point. The things that we love sometimes actually will kill us. Like, the thing, like this is what idolatry does. And this is what God knows about idolatry that his people don't get. 
is that if they're going to go into Canaan serving this thing that they think is going to help them and give them, um, is going to prosper them, that they're going to, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be chaos. And so God loves them too much to let that happen. And he does a couple things. First, Moses does this like kind of weird thing where he burns the idol. And like, this is not Christian hazing. It's like Bucks guys don't get any ideas. But he's like, this is, sorry, was that, all right, anyway. I, so he, this isn't like Christian hazing. He, he burns this thing, grounds it into a powder, puts it into water. And he's like, drink it. What is he doing? What he's doing is he show, what, what has God been doing every single day that they've been in the wilderness? Giving them water, giving them food. Moses is like, this is the only sustenance that this thing can give you. It's it. How's it taste? Not so good. But not only that, and I love like when you ask Aaron, like, where did this thing come from? Aaron's like, I don't know. We just threw some gold in the fire and like, out came this calf. Like, it's just ridiculous. Not only that, but then God, verse 26 and 27 happened. And we read that and you're probably like, what is up with this? God has Moses gather up people. And then in verse 26 and 27, he says, verse 27, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. What is he showing? Why is he doing this? By the way, this is not, this is not grumpy Old Testament God who's totally different from like cool, hippie, nice New Testament Jesus. They're the same God. So what is going on here? God is demonstrating to them this is the fruit of worshiping something that can't save you. You're going to die. He's disciplining them. And by the way, remember, I know 3,000 people is a lot of people. There's over a million people in the camp. He doesn't wipe them out, which he could have and would have been just to do. He's disciplining them. And we don't know what happens to the souls of those 3,000 people. They are God's people. He says that. He's made covenants with them. But he is disciplining them. But he's doing it because he's a, because he's actually wants them to see that this is what worshiping something that can't save you is ultimately going to end in. It's going to end in your destruction. And maybe you're here and you're like not a Christian and you're like, okay, that sounds nice, but like, dang, that's, that still seems a little ridiculous to me and over the top. But really quick, my last point is like way shorter than the first point. The solution for idolaters. You've got to know the solution for idolaters because this God is actually, he's so gracious and we see it in this passage. In verse 32, Moses, towards the end of this story, he goes, he draws back, goes away to God and Moses tries to act as this mediator between God and the people. Moses says, look, if you'll forgive their sin, but if not, like, please blot me out of your book that you've written. In other words, like, let the punishment fall on me so they don't get it. Like, I'll take, I'll take it. And then there's like kind of the record scratch of this passage. Verse 33, the Lord says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of the book. I will blot out of my book. And here's the bad news for Moses. Moses has sinned. Moses, Moses murdered a guy unjustly in Egypt. 
Moses ran away and he hid. Moses, Moses gets mad at God later. Moses is, Moses is a screw up. See, Moses isn't a sufficient mediator. But here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Because God knows that there needs to be a better mediator and so he's going to provide it. And he does that by becoming a man. You see, the slaughter of the 3,000 people and like brother against brother, that, that stuff, that, that does not compute. And it's hard to wrap your mind around that. But then when you see that God, in order to save people like that, he sends his son. So by the way, Men are losing their sons in this judgment. What does God do? He gives his one and only son so that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, may have eternal life. Jesus is blotted out on the cross so that you wouldn't be. He is forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's blotted out on the cross. Jesus, just like they drink this like cup of punishment, this like weird gold dust stuff. Jesus drinks the full cup of God's wrath on the cross. Why? So that you can have a mediator. And that's not only why. It's not just so that you can be forgiven. What is Moses going, what is Moses away doing and meeting with God about? God is going to is planning on how to come and live with them. See, God's goal for you, this is important, listen to me. God's goal for you isn't just that you would be forgiven. That's the means to a greater end. He doesn't just want to kind of forgive you, wipe you clean, be like, all right, now go get him, like, be better. He offers you forgiveness by faith alone in Jesus. So that he can adopt you. So that he can live with you. So that you can be his. And that's what we need. And he loves you too much. He loves you too much for you to go chasing after these false idols that cannot save you guys. I can't tell you even how many students who've recently graduated that I've talked to, who are in these awesome jobs that they thought were going to satisfy me. They're like, I'm not satisfied. I'm empty. All the money in the world, all the success, the power, the beauty, it's not going to satisfy you or save you. God knows that. And he loves you. And he's a good father. So come to him. Not all cleaned up because you figured it out. Come to him and let him clean you. And you'll be his because he loves you. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would sink this truth deep into our hearts and that we would believe and we ask that you'd help us in our unbelief. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand and sing.